Lusitania Captain William Thomas Turner had what writer Eric Larson called, quote, the physique of a bank safe, the embodiment of quiet strength. Turner was the son of a sea captain who had wanted him to go into the church instead, but William went to sea at eight years old as a cabin boy, and then he never left the ocean. Once he was serving as a second mate of a clipper ship when he ended up in the water with sharks circling him apparently for hours. He joined Cunard in 1877 at just 21 years old, but left a few years later when he learned he'd never be internally promoted without having already been master of a ship with another company. At one point, he leapt into Liverpool Harbor to save a 14-year-old boy who'd fallen from the docks. He went into water that was so cold it could have killed him in minutes. It was February. In 1883, he married his cousin, Alice. They had two sons. He rejoined Cunard and spent two decades working from third officer up to chief officer. He was master of the small ship Aleppo as of 1903. Unfortunately, his wife left him and took his two sons to Australia and he hired a carer and companion who described him, quote, as a jolly man, even though he was known as a hardline and strict and often quiet disciplinarian on his ships. After two years, he moved on to the command of the Carpathia, which in April of 1912, of course, would come to the rescue in the wee hours of a cold morning to the survivors of Titanic. On the night of May 6, 1915, as captain of the Lusitania, he walked into the first-class lounge on the ship, where he calmly informed the gathered there that, as they'd all known would happen, the next day the ship would enter waters off the coast of Ireland deemed a zone of war. What was new was the revelation that Turner had just, and he told them all of this, received a warning of actual submarine activity not far from where the Lusitania sailed. Fears that had seemed so far away under the din of the dining saloon and the sounds of this bustling ship, this floating city, as these ships were, uh, these fears were suddenly very real. I'm L.A. Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast, of course. This is a book club episode. This is Eric Larson's Dead Wake the last crossing of the Lusitania. note on sound, you guys. I unfortunately had a complete failure slash loss of my MacBook a few days ago. Uh, after scrambling, I realized I could get a pretty good setup going on, on my husband's desktop, but it's a little bit older of a computer. I'm in a new room right now. I have a slightly different setup, so the sound may be a little different than it typically is. The quality may be a tad lower. Noise reduction may be not quite as good. I apologize, but I am in the process of picking out a new computer, so perhaps the sound will be better than ever for the next episode. So 
When I began reading this Eric Larson book again, I realized that I needed to completely reteach myself the story of the Lusitania. It had been years since I had read this. I also realized that this question I ask myself and my podcast guests all the time, this question of why Titanic, why does it stay in the cultural imagination when other ships don't? But that question is so tied in to the story of the Lusitania. That question is inherent and festering in the question of why not Lusitania. And I needed to answer this question, I guess, though the question sounds a little bit crass in some ways, perhaps. And honestly, by the time I was done rereading this book, I wanted to make an entire podcast series about the Lusitania as well. Uh, I won't. I don't have time. But the sources are there. And the vibrancy of the lives of the people on board and the lives lost are, as in any disaster, complex and historical and important. And in terms of the Lusitania, the sources for them are there just as much as they are for Titanic. Also, and Larson notes this as well, as he began to research, he um, puts this in his notes at the end. I was always operating under the assumption that the act of sinking the Lusitania had decisively and immediately sent the United States to war, but it didn't. Wilson didn't call for the United States to join World War I until almost two years later, after the Lusitania. And this just shows how broad strokes tend to define our historical education and understanding at least in the United States. That's all I can speak to. So I also want to lay bare that, I mean, I am an expert in some ways in this period of American history and a little bit European history, but I am by no means an expert on World War I or European history or political history. So that is just a disclaimer. When I look into topics that dip more into the history of war, politics, that sort of thing. I am not in my most comfortable element, and I do my best to go to good sources. And if you are interested in just World War I history, I will do a good job on my website and in the show notes of recommending some books. So another thing is that there are so many physical and thematic ties to Titanic with Lusitania. And I think in the back of my head, I knew that obviously, but now But sitting down and reading this book again and sitting with the Lusitania again and Googling things and and all that, you know, sort of researching entails for an episode like this, I uncovered so many that I had forgotten about. So this book club episode, obviously Eric Larson is not on the podcast. Uh, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I did shoot my shot and email him and he was very generous and said he was you know, happy to get the invitation, but he just didn't have time and dipping back to a book he'd written a while back, uh, maybe be a little bit too much. And so I totally get that. And he was wonderful to reply. So this book club episode really turned into more of a Lusitania episode, almost more of a, you know, unsinkable side series Lusitania episode. So it, I mean, it probably won't follow the structure of the typical book club episodes. Those tend to have the author interviews. So I just, I want to kind of let the story unfold. And if you've read the book, then some of this might be what you just read. But I also am going to put some of it into some context, talk about its connections to Titanic, talk about 
a few critiques of the book. I only have a few. I think it's a fantastic work and I am a huge fan of Eric Larson's in general. Uh, Devil in the White City, which he wrote about the murders that took place at the Columbian Exposition in 1893, uh, really is perhaps my favorite book of all time. Uh, if you know me personally, you know I've probably either gifted you a copy or talked your ear about it off at off your ear off about it at some point uh and also his book about the Galveston hurricane of 1900 Isaac Storm is another of my favorite of all time it's it's brutal and uh and hard to get through but uh, gorgeously written and this one is as well so i want to thank Eric Larson for just writing so beautifully about this tragedy and their really is nothing that's more of a balm for me, especially in stressful times. And I've just had a ton going on. I mean, in a lot of good ways uh, these days. And when I sit down with a book that really has a lot, that is dense and well-written, and I get to take notes, that's pretty much my happy place. You've probably figured that out about me. So uh, I really enjoyed it. So thank you, Eric Larson, for being the ultimate source for this episode. Thank you for writing this book. I am sorry that this episode is a bit late for the anniversary of the sinking of the Lusitania. That was obviously a few days ago. Uh, I just, I got a bit delayed, but I wanted to honor this ship and its sinking. So here we go. The ship was booked at capacity, the Lusitania was. 1,265 passengers, including, heartbreakingly, an abnormally and unexpectedly, I guess both of those things, number of babies and young children. It was operated by the Cunard Line out of Liverpool, founded originally back in 1839 by a man named Samuel Cunard, who was awarded the first British transatlantic steamship mail contract that seven times fast, together with ship owner Sir George Burns and Robert Napier, a famous uh, steamship engine designer, Napier was. So together they formed what was then called the British and North American Royal Mail Steam Packet Company. This operation was a set of paddle steamers that ran the Liverpool, Halifax, and Boston route. So in the 1870s, the line fell behind some of the rivals at the time, like, here we go, White Star Line. And if you want a little history of White Star Line at that point in the late 19th century, I do go over a bit of that in my second episode I ever did on Bruce Ismay and his father. There's some information there. So in 1902, to help it stay competitive, the government gave Cunard loans and subsidies to build two superliners that were outfitted to be warships if necessary, though unfortunately they later discovered this didn't really work well in practice. Uh, but these were the Mauritania and the Lusitania. I always think about in the 97 movie when Rose gets out of the car and she looks up and she says, this doesn't look any bigger than the Mauritania. Well, that's actually a pretty relevant comment because Cunard and White Star Line were considered in this sort of direct competition these liners were. And they were all the biggest ships of the time and the fastest. So Lusitania, let's talk about speed though. Lusitania launched in 1907 and in 1908 held the fast, held the record for the fastest Atlantic crossing. Uh, it 
was designed to go at a top speed of 25 knots, which is 30 miles an hour. But this is really important because there is this myth that Titanic was built to break speed records, right? And that ties in with all of the theories about Ismay and Captain Smith talking about the speed throughout the voyage, lighting more boilers, trying to make it into New York faster. It's all part of this mythology. But the facts sort of tell something different, which is that its top speed was 23 knots. So when Titanic was built, it was entering into this sort of liner rivalry, the ship liners, and this competition of size and luxury and speed. Titanic wasn't necessarily built to break these speed records. It was built to break luxury records in many ways. But the Lusitania had a top speed of 25 knots, and I'm pretty sure White Star Line would have known that. So that sort of busts open some of that mythology. So the Lusitania set in April of 1915 as it props for this voyage on May 1st. It sits at Pier 54 on the Hudson. The Lusitania was 787 feet long. Just for reference, the Titanic was 882 feet long. Uh, With a lot of passenger ships out of commission because of the war, the Lusitania was technically the fastest civilian vessel afloat at the time. By April of 1915, it had completed 201 crossings of the Atlantic. I cannot emphasize enough the similarities between Lusitania and Titanic, not just in class makeup, first, second, third, amenities and luxuries, architecture, but in the role both ship plays in the popularity and intrigue of this great liner era, this era right before airplanes and war would change how people got across the ocean and would remove the sort of romantic, luxurious notion that people had about travel on these liners. Lusitania, like Titanic, burned tons and tons of coal, a thousand tons a day, stokers, trimmers, firemen working 100 per shift. Its appetite for coal is why the British Admiralty actually put it back into like civilian passenger service after initially exercising the right to put it into armed service back at the beginning of the war. By May of 1915, Captain Turner was certainly Cunard's most seasoned captain. Just to note, he was said to be fearless. The Lusitania had enough lifeboats for every single person on board, every soul on board. There was what Eric Larson calls boat fever in the aftermath of Titanic. This is just a few years later. And there was obviously this idea in public opinion that if there had been enough lifeboats on board Titanic, that everybody would have been saved. Now we'll talk about it more in a little bit. I think Most of my listeners, probably you're aware that that debate is a little bit more complex than it seems on its surface in terms of how boats are lowered and uh, what a scenario would have actually looked like with more boats in Titanic. So really varies ship to ship, but because in the public mind, in in, in the American mind, European mind, 
the lack of lifeboats in Titanic was the culprit in a lot of ways. There is this push to physically have enough lifeboat space on every single ship. In the United States, President Wilson was still in a fog of despair following the death of his wife, Ellen, from kidney disease. Like I said, I will offer up some recommendations on reading on World War I, on Wilson, on the early days of the war and the political maneuvering back and forth. I will say, and I'm not going to cover that in this episode. Number one, Eric Larson does a really great job of uh, laying out uh, the beginning of the war. Number two, it's not my favorite part of this book. Whenever the book heads back to Wilson's White House and his relationship to William Jennings Bryant and his relationship to the death of his wife and this burgeoning relationship he has with Edith, who would become his second wife. I find the topic really interesting. Uh, I love, as you know, <laughs> uh, you know, delving into people's emotionality, the complexity of their humanity, the complexity of their relationships, and how they might have affected their decision making or the kind of state of their minds in life. But in this book, I it really took away in my mind from the momentum of the Lusitania itself, which to me was what the book was about. So these Wilson sections in the book were not my favorite. I I really won't be dwelling on them much in this conversation. And it really is one of my only critiques of the book. Um, so for a summary of World War One, I, I would either point you to this book uh, for, you know, very cursory explanation, or I would point you to just reading uh, more about the war in other uh, places. And and like I said, I'll put I'll try to put a few in the show notes. Um, But the basics, right, are that after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, Austria declared war on Serbia, Germany entered Belgium, Britain declared war, siding with Russia and France, the Allies, Germany and Austria-Hungary linked as the central powers, and Wilson had declared American neutrality. By the end of 1914, the war was a dark, smoky stalemate in Europe. This was trench warfare like we've all seen in the history textbooks. There is a film by Sam Mendes called 1917 that came out a few years ago, and uh, it does an excellent job of portraying life in the trenches during World War I. I highly recommend that film. The submarine U-boats is what I'll be calling them, what obviously they are, uh, The German submarine was not considered a particularly crucial part of war planning at the beginning. Uh, Early submarines, and Larson goes into this, early submarines were basically just like hot death traps. Uh, The big example is the Hunley, which was a Civil War era submarine. And it, I think, gosh, I think it killed three or... It exploded or flooded three times and killed three crews. And Larson goes over this. So early submarines were basically like, if you got in one, you better have your will taken care of. And hopefully you don't have small children. Uh, They were very experimental in the late 19th century. So there was just still this idea 
even among politicians, even among among military officials, that subs wouldn't necessarily be such a huge threat. But in September of 1914, a single submarine sank three large British cruisers, killing 1,400 people. And this is key because two of the ships had actually stopped to help survivors of the first ship that was attacked. And those two ships had then obviously become sitting targets. So the Admiralty, the British Admiralty, because of this issued orders that no large British warships could aid U-boat victims. That's going to come into play. In February of 1915, Germany issued a proclamation that the waters of the British Isles were an area of war. Kaiser Wilhelm had authorized U-boat commanders to sink any ship they believed to be British or French. In March of 1915, a British merchant ship, the Falaba, was sunk, killing 104 people, including an American named Leon Thrasher. President Wilson grew worried for a cry of war in America at this point. His Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, another <laughs> another favorite among high school uh, history courses and textbooks, I feel like no matter what, uh, a high school history class always gets to William Jennings Bryan. It's just so interesting, at least here in the United States. But he, Wilson was worried, but Bryan said that uh, he felt there was still no case for it because the man had knowingly traveled on a British ship through a war zone, and it was only one man, which I personally think is never an argument. Any any one life lost is... Uh, obviously a tragedy. So back to sort of the, you know, the prepping of the Lusitania to sail and the environment that it's sailing in, in America, in New York City, in May of 1915. New York City's society was similar to the Titanic moment we discussed so much here, you know, extravagant spending in the upper classes, displays of wealth, while so many in, with lower status and less money toiled in an increasingly bustling and very modern city. Some of Lusitania's passengers, Larson points this out, might have attended the Friday night party uh, at Delmonico's, this would have been right before sailing, in which the entire place was made up to look like an African glade, complete with black men in tights who turned out to be white men in blackface. Uh, there is too much to unpack right now with that, but it's a reminder of the race inequalities rampant at the time of the themes of class inequality rampant at the time. Also in New York, plans had been drawn for a memorial fountain that would honor... Jack Phillips, the wireless operator who was lost on Titanic. It would also uh, honor eight other Marconi operators that had been lost in maritime disasters. They actually openly left space for future additional names, which is a haunting fact. The passenger list for the Lusitania, 949 British people, 189 Americans, 71 Russians, and smaller clusters of passengers from France, Greece, Sweden, Belgium, Italy, Mexico. Turner testified about Titanic. Captain Turner did. Literally the day before the Lusitania sailed, this was a suit in which the White Star it was White Star Line's attempts to limit their financial liability, and Turner had been brought in to testify 
for the families. He testified that he would have stopped or gone slowly through ice that night had that been him in charge of Titanic. He also notably said that binoculars were almost pointless. So those comments obviously intersect so much of what we talk about with Titanic mythology, Titanic what-ifs, and I want you to know we'll be revisiting a lot of those questions in a couple of weeks when I do a Captain Smith episode. (laughs) So scared about that one, Uh, but I'm excited too. So I just wanted to point out though just the intersection of fate and and the all the themes that we talk about right that the night before he gets on the Lusitania to captain it Turner is in New York testifying about the Titanic disaster Captain Turner does have a lifeboat drill for the 48 boats they were 22 class A lifeboats and 26 collapsibles uh these you probably are familiar with from the Titanic story there was not enough room on deck for all of the regular boats, but collapsibles could be tucked under and then lowered from the same davits as the Class A ones. Now, we're in a war, so there's a labor shortage. So there's a lot of inexperienced sailors on board. Guys, I am, like I mentioned, recording in my husband's office, and our cat, Minnie, is really used to spending her days with him in his office. So I've just let her in. She literally knocked on the door as she does. I mean, pawed, but, and there she is. So if it gets, (laughs) if it gets uh, insane, I will uh, pause, get her to a new place and restart. But I'm going to attempt to let her stay in here with just the occasional meow. So we'll see how it goes. Turner actually left the ship the night before to see his niece on Broadway in a play called The Lie, and then he ate at Lukau's, 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 a German restaurant on East 14th Street. In London, a five-story building called the Old Building, it's near the Thames. Uh, in this building, there was a place called Room 40, which is really important to this story. And if you've already read Eric Larson's book, you know that he kind of slices up the book in terms of of location and going back and forth between Lusitania, White House, Room 40, the U-boat. But Room 40 was where hundreds of coded German messages were decoded for the Admiralty. The war had grown really dark. German warships shelled English coastal towns. In January of 1915, Germany launched its first ever air raid. Uh, Winston Churchill was president of the Board of Trade at this time. He insisted that all messages be recorded. As Lusitania prepared to depart, Room 40 learned of new surges in U-boat activity, and that's going to play a huge role here in a bit. A crowd gathered at the piers uh, on May 1st, where Titanic would have arrived three years earlier. And these ocean liners, the boarding for first class was in many ways a red carpet event. And I want to do two things. I want to go over a few of the passengers that were on board because I think that's where Eric Larson really shines is when he's writing about individuals and their stories. And I want to highlight a few that he does. But number two, I do really quickly want to point out that my other main criticism of this book, 
apart from the Wilson sections is that I don't think you leave this book with a good sense of what was going on in third class at all. There are a couple of mentions of menus, a couple of brief mentions of passengers, but the, and it may be a reflection on the sources. And I understand that, but uh, the third class is missing from this book. So I just want to point out that I am mostly going to talk about first and second class passengers. And uh, unfortunately, that's what's on offer in this book and may mean that later on down the line, I need to do an unsinkable side series episode on the Lusitania and I need to dig into sources and see what I can find. And I, I probably will do that at some point. It's such an important story. So first class passenger, Charles Laurier Jr., who's the Boston bookseller that Larson writes about. He has since 1894 been president of one of the United States' best-known bookstores, which carried his name. This is when book dealers, as Larson points out, were elite celebrities often. And he was traveling with a friend named Lothrop Withington. You cannot make that up. A genealogy expert. Uh, Laurier had four children. And he had a baby, actually, one of the four, whose photo he carried close to him and would turn into a bit of a talisman. He carried a copy of A Christmas Carol that had belonged to Charles Dickens himself. He had sold it to a client recently, but was borrowing it to take to Europe to show some people. There was Alta Piper, who was supposed to be on board. She was the daughter of medium Lenora Piper, known as Mrs. Piper. Uh, But she, the night before, heard a voice saying, if you get into your berth, you'll never get out. So she spent the next morning packing and repacking her suitcase and never made it on board. In first class, there was Charles Froman, theater impresario, who made Ethel Barrymore a star, and had he had been the one that brought Peter Pan to the United States. There was George Kessler, wealthy wine importer known as the Champagne King. Another shadow of Titanic, there was Alfred Gwynne of Vanderbilt, uh, son and heir of the late Cornelius, and a member of what they call the Gismistic Club, People like Marconi, J.P. Morgan, Theodore Dreiser, very wealthy men who were supposed to be on Titanic, allegedly, and uh, did not make it. So Vanderbilt had had a scandal with his first marriage after an affair with the wife of a Cuban diplomat, but he had remarried, and his wife was staying behind in New York, though. She was an heir to the Bramo Seltzer fortune. Again, you cannot make this stuff up. On Lusitania, Vanderbilt had a parlor suite and lodged his valet two doors down. Cal and Lovejoy, anybody? Sorry. He paid for his tickets in cash, the equivalent of $22,000 today. Uh, In second class was Richard Preston Pritchard, a 29-year-old medical student at McGill University in Montreal who was headed home to see family. There was Robert K., a young boy who ended up with the measles right as he boarded and his mom was pregnant, very, 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 very pregnant and was trying to make it home to have the baby in Britain or make it to her parents to have the baby uh, close to them. Those were some of the passengers that stuck out for me, and we'll talk about them again and what happens to them. 
again, I cannot stress enough how much when I was going through this book, I realized that you could easily do a whole podcast on the Lusitania and every episode could be one of these families. There were whole families on board. And it's it's easy, at least it is for me, it's easy to to start reading about even one of these people and become just enamored of their life and heartbroken by their story. But that is just a few. A few passengers had read the warning that the German embassy had put in newspapers, cautioning people to avoid the war zone in passenger vessels. Uh, No one thought, though, that Germany would (laughs) actually dare sink a full civilian passenger ship. It was unbelievable. Sound familiar? Uh, Two people canceled because of it, but only two of nearly 2,000. There was gallows humor on board, a lot of passengers reported, but no one seemed truly, truly frightened, though there were, (laughs) this would have been me, there were a few reports of passengers sleeping in the lifeboats. That, I'm not kidding. That's what I would have done. Just in my mind, I would have thought, if I have to take this trip and I have no choice, maybe it's for a, a vital family matter or something, I'm going to equip myself with the lifeboat and then already be in the lifeboat. So if something happens, maybe I'll have a chance. So smart people. Uh, there were families returning home to do their part in the war. So there were a lot of kids on board. Like I mentioned, there were whole families like the Cromptons of Philadelphia, six children, including an infant. And Crompton was a cousin of Cunard's chairman. Cunard, is it, it's Cunard. Guys, I know that's the proper way to pronounce it, but my brain just does something differently, different sometimes. I am sorry if I seem <laughs> a little out there. It's been a week and then the computer situation and recording in a new area, I'm just a little bit thrown. So I apologize. My favorite, most intriguing passenger to read about in this process, Theodate Pope. She was a feminist. Uh, She's an architect with spiritualist leanings. And I really am tempted to go all the way into a tangent on spiritualism again at this time. It really informs a lot, especially in first class uh, on Lusitania. There are people that would have been involved in circles uh, involving spiritualism. But I think I'm going to save that because I am doing uh, the episode on Captain Smith. It's going to be called The Ghosts of Captain Smith. And there is a little bit of a paranormal spiritualist element to that episode. Won't ruin anything now, but... I'll discuss more of this then. So I'll put a pen in it, as they say. Uh, Theodate, her father had been an iron tycoon, but she'd rejected a lot of the society norms, including marriage up to this point. At one point, she even joined the Socialist Party to drive her parents crazy. Uh, She was also known to battle a great deal of depression. And she headed on this trip, uh, according to her own memoirs, uh, not in the best headspace already. Uh, Room 40 knew that the German wireless operators were sending out Lusitania's location. Uh, They also knew several new U-boats were out in service, but none of this was communicated to Captain Turner, and he didn't even know that Room 40 existed. Most people wouldn't have had that clearance. 
At the last minute, 40 passengers were brought on from the Cameronia, another ship. The Admiralty had commandeered that ship and those people were brought on the Lusitania. There was also a delay with Captain Turner. His niece came on board to say goodbye and they they were prepping the ship to leave while she was still on it. So they had to put the gangplank back down. So it's these two delays a lot of people cite as if they didn't happen, potentially changing the fate of the Lusitania. These two delays would prove in indeed in little twisted bits of fate to be quite fatal. Because of the threat of icebergs in May, still at this point, Turner chose the long course further south in the Atlantic. If the trip went to plan, then the Lusitania would arrive at Mersey Bar outside Liverpool Harbor in the early morning hours of May 8th, would have which would have been a Saturday. Some wartime precautions were in place, though. There was no wireless transmissions that were allowed from the Marconi room on Lusitania, except when absolutely urgent. There was no gossiping, quote-unquote, between wireless operators. It's an interesting word for it, but, you know, we've talked about the wireless operators a little bit. Uh, They did communicate a lot with one another out in the ocean. They had their own dialogue their own language almost of how they spoke in these quick bursts to one another. Uh, And oftentimes it was probably to commiserate commiserate about something. So, uh, but that was not allowed on this voyage and passenger messages could come in, but none could go out. And this is interesting in terms of what we talk about with Titanic on board Titanic, obviously, I've mentioned it before, you know, first class passengers used it as an early form of text messages that they didn't have to type. You know, they're sending off little messages like, make sure my car is ready, make sure, you know, you've got a certain type of food for me ready to eat, or, you know, trips going well, let me tell you a brief little um, thing about it. And so it was almost like an early form of text messages, except it was the Marconi men that had to be hunched over the device and doing the labor of them. But there were none, there was none of that going on on the Lusitania trip this time around. None could go out. U-boat specific strategies were very nascent at this point in terms of Cunard's instructions for captains. And the instructions were often really contradictory. You know, when to stay close to shore versus when not was often really confusing. Um, zigzagging was a strategy that was in its sort of nascent stages of being used by captains. Later on, Cunard and the Admiralty would claim that Turner had a zigzagging memo (laughs) in his possession. In other words, the recommendation that he sail in a zigzag pattern to get away from U-boats. But that memo was apparently not distributed until May 13th. You know, always, it made me think of, you know, they always say if you encounter an alligator to run in a zigzag pattern because they can't do that. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how it doesn't seem, I don't know how effective that would be, uh, but I know nothing about uh, naval maneuverings. May 1st, as Lusitania sailed, an American oil tanker was torpedoed. Life aboard the ship was uh, frenetic and joyful for many. It was, you know, like life on Titanic, especially in the first class, uh, extravagant. Uh, food was p- a plenty, uh, drink was a plenty, cigars were a plenty. For the first class, the ship, like Titanic, basically functioned as a four star 
hotel. Uh, passengers recounted that war and submarines were very much on their minds, but not uh, not completely taking over their conversations. I think uh, I think when there is sort of a low level of fear simmering underneath a situation, there's a lot of adrenaline, but there's also a lot of just. I don't know. I think the human brain is is capable of of pushing things aside when it needs to. And the psychology of this is really interesting. If you think about these people being on board a liner, knowing they are headed into a war zone, and they've been told, I mean, kind of anecdotally, right, that on a ship this size, they would be safe no matter what. <laughs> it sounds familiar too. Um but there is, but the fear is there. They're aware of it. So it's just, it's interesting. We think about getting inside the brain of passengers, especially of families. Uh, Eric Larson does a really, really good job of going through letters, memoirs, interviews with passengers, with survivors. I think there was one wife when asked, you know, well, what if, what if the worst does happen? What if you are hit by a torpedo. And she says something along the lines of, well, at least we'll go down together. So again, sort of a gallows humor, I think, prevails. And I think it has to when, as humans, we are confronted with these kinds of fears and the unknown. Passenger letters later reveal life on board. We see these moments of life on board, just as with Titanic, the sources do. Children on decks and at birthday parties, concerts in the evenings. Uh, one second class person said, quote, a happier company of passengers would be impossible to find. Though Dorothy Connor, a first class passenger said, this seems like something I would have maybe said. I don't know. I can be said <laughs> She said, quote, I'd never seen a more uneventful or stupid voyage. So I guess she was commenting on maybe some just the vapid nature of things. I don't know. Um, thank you, Dorothy. Uh, reports of a French ship being torpedoed uh, were coming through. Lighthouse keepers reported a submarine chasing a steamer. Room 40 is hearing all of this, monitoring U-boat uh, captains and U-boat, you know, maneuverings as best they can. They knew that there was this U-boat, U-20, heading south, and they knew it was going to be in the North Atlantic with orders to shoot. <laughs> and still they they did not tell Turner really anything at this point. On land and sea, Larson points out, reporting on the war was very broad, as if it was being reported like a chess game. And this was deceptive, not necessarily purposely, but, but deceptive in the sense that so many lives were being lost so violently in Europe at the time, particularly in this trench warfare. But if you were an American and opening up the paper, it might be easy for you to keep yourself emotionally separated because you're just reading about the maneuvering of troops, the maneuvering of ships. It doesn't seem personal. It doesn't seem human flesh yet, if that's how you're viewing the war. U-20, under the command of Captain Walter Schweiger was on the hunt in the North Atlantic, perhaps restless without as many hits as he had expected. And he was in one of Britain's primary 
sea lanes. So the sinister, and again, Larson does a really good job of laying all this out. The sinister viewpoint is that hoping that the United States would join the Allies if a passenger liner with Americans on board was hit, that maybe the British Admiralty had a view to sort of let the Lusitania be at risk. Churchill was quoted as saying, in terms of merchant traffic, quote, we want the traffic, and quote, if some of it gets into trouble, better still, end quote. Turner had lifeboats swung out as they got closer to the coast of Ireland, just in case. The wireless came through that, quote, submarines were active off of the south coast of Ireland. There were also messages from the Admiralty about strategy for Captain Turner at this point. So they were acknowledging the presence of subs in this area. They absolutely were, but they were not offering an escort and they weren't offering really many specific instructions to Captain Turner, which is alarming given the size of the ship that he is captaining with the number of civilians that he has on board. But like I said earlier, the instructions in terms of navigation were really confusing coming out of Cunard. Uh, zigzag this way or stay close to shore this time, stay mid-channel this time. It's At this point, the war is so new to these ship captains and their roles as captains of, you know, civilian vessels. They had never sat down and had a training program. They had not sat down in a room and discussed these strategies with their employers. This was all new. This was all speculative to some. Uh, it wasn't. It was an ironclad document. So there was a lot of ways in which it could. There were a lot of ways in which these suggestions could be interpreted. So on May seventh, the last full day at sea, they were to arrive the next day. There was a fog, but then it cleared. There was a new message that there were subs located five miles south of Cape, of Cape Clear proceeding west. Lusitania was already past that point, so Turner probably breathed a sigh of relief at this point, thinking they might be past the danger. The ship is going not as fast as it could at this point. But there's a reason. Turner knew that if he accelerated at this point, which I'm sure he might have been tempted to, he'd hit Mersey Tide uh, too early. It had to be uh, at high tide. So he wasn't going super fast because then he would have just arrived somewhere that he had to then stop, which seemed like a worse, a worse idea. Um, but he was still going faster than submarine. And this really is something that I, I picked up in, in Larson's book and that I talk a lot about on the podcast in terms, of, in terms of Titanic, a lot of conversations about speed. And I am not a naval expert. I am not a naval historian. I'm learning as I'm going with this podcast. But I get the sense from reading Larson's book that political officials, naval officials thought that as long as a ship could go faster than a submarine could, that it would get away from it. But <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. A target's a target. And yes, a moving target is harder to hit, but uh, 
it still can be hit. So I don't think that there was much of an understanding that this was really a conversation about torpedo strength. And I don't think that the ally power, those in power among the allies knew how strong some of these torpedoes could be or the impact that they could have. And again, this is all an oversimplification for the for this episode. There's so much. I mean, there's a couple of World War One podcasts that um, a listener on Twitter recommended to me, and I'll put those in the show notes. There's a whole world to open up in terms of the history of World War One here. So um, Schwager, he was remember, it's Schwager, Schwager, I think it's Schwager. Uh, he was the commander of the U-boat, U-20. So he happens upon the Lusitania. He'd been on this route to Liverpool, uh, didn't have success, missed targets, uh, didn't feel like he had enough resources to make it all the way to Liverpool. So he's turning back and he is just looking for targets as he goes. And I think the narrative of, oh, he happened upon the Lusitania. I mean, I get that technically it's true. He didn't necessarily head into this particular U-boat mission with the goal of sinking the Lusitania. But I think that takes away the agency. Uh, he uh, he, and, uh, you know, obviously under orders from Germany, but then he specifically as well, you know, uh, pushed the buttons and chose actively to... Uh, take a shot at this huge passenger ship in his sights. I don't care whether it's an accident that he happened upon the Lusitania. It was an active decision to shoot. 44 miles an hour. The Lusitania was unescorted. He was surprised by that. Crew and passengers saw something moving across the sea as if the sea was a flat plane. People began to shout, here is a torpedo coming. Uh, people are on deck, and suddenly it's very clear what's happening. There's no question. Theodate Pope remembered being on B deck, and the, the sky was blue, this gorgeous blue color. And she remembers wondering how officers would ever see a periscope. <sighs> and I mean, how would lookouts ever see an iceberg in a moonless night? And how would you know, officers see a periscope on this gorgeous sea. Similar. Uh, the track lingered on the surface, and this is what a dead wake is. Schwager claims he had, just at that moment that he fired, realized what ship it was. But that seems unbelievable. I mean, we know that Germany was intricately tracking the movements of the Lusitania. And even if it was an accident, quote unquote, that he ended up being the one to sink it, that's that that was their plan that was that wasn't uh that you both that did it they were going to send out more to try to do it in the future 350 pounds of explosives against the hull of the lusitania a hole the size of a house as eric larson describes it a geyser of steel and water lifeboat five was just blown away to bits the passengers on deck were drenched and the ship was still moving, so it forced flooding, and the water went into longitudinal bunkers and into boiler rooms. The moment of impact, it's 2.05 in the afternoon on a beautiful day, now interrupted with everyone's worst fear. A crowd, this is a Larson quote, a quote, crowd of third-class passengers emerged from below. I would ask Eric Larson, 
where those people have been in the book. I wanted to know more about what they were doing prior to this moment. Uh, Turner tried to wrangle the ship, um, tried to stop it, tried to make some sort of plan for running it aground, but it was, there's nothing to be done. He ordered lifeboats to be filled. Crew that were trapped in the luggage area because they'd been prepping luggage because remember they were only a day out, died right away. An immediate list meant that boats hung weirdly in their davits. Some had to leap on their reports of children leaping on to boats. If you were agile at this point, you probably had a better chance of survival. And remember, see, this is a crucial debate. Technically speaking, there were enough lifeboats on board for everybody, but uh, there was no time to properly launch them all. And the list meant that they couldn't be properly launched, even if there was a lot of time. Half full boats were were what was going on. Um, some were even launched by passengers with no training, or they were being at- the launch was being attempted. Um, a lot of them weren't successful. Many people just started jumping in the water. A man named Isaac Lehman, who was a New York businessman. He pulled a revolver out and told a crewman to launch a boat, even though the crewman thought it wouldn't be safe to launch. And uh, sure enough, he did what he was asked to do at gunpoint, but the boat uh, fell in this weird way and ended up killing people on impact. Captain Turner is on the bridge and he has, according to witnesses, this moment of, you know, my God, he says, my God, and It reminds me of the Smith moment in the 97 film, um, that image of Captain Smith realizing how little time they have or or how many people will die and, you know, that my God moment. But the difference is Turner has this moment just 10, 15 minutes later. The water is surging over the forecastle already. We're talking it's 215, 217 after an impact at 205. And already he knows the ship is lost. And I think... This is, you know, I opened up the episode by asking why Titanic, why not Lusitania in terms of a cultural obsession. And I think this has got to be one of the big answers. And if you disagree, let me know. I want feedback. But you're talking a 15-minute sinking, a pure chaos, an animal, almost an animalistic response, which is what happens when something happens that quickly from people. Um, versus two and a half hours. And I think with Titanic, that's what we talk about a lot, right? That it's it's already a screenplay. It's already a book. It's already a story and a certain number of acts. Two and a half hours, there's time to go back to staterooms. There's time to have conversations. There's time to make plans. There's time to pray. There's time to make sacrifices. There's no time to do any of that in 15 minutes. And uh, there are many, many, many people that are killed simply because a lifeboat starts to launch, goes awry and crushes them against a wall. There are people that are jumping into the water and they hit their head on something unexpected and they die right away. There are children being separated from their mothers in the chaos. There's a heartbreaking story of one mother, and Eric Larson uh, writes about this, who I think her baby was at some sort of daycare type of situation on an upper deck, and then her toddler was napping in a room, and she had to make a decision about who to go retrieve. And then she handed her baby over to someone, and that person didn't get the baby on a boat. 
Uh, so that baby didn't survive. I think her toddler survived, but it just pure, pure chaos. Uh, so much so that Schwager, you know, in the periscope from the U-boat, he looked at the scene he just created. And he said in his memoirs, he said he had to look away. He couldn't take it. You know, he saw, literally could see uh, children dying in front of his face. And he had caused that destruction. And then he just sails away. Uh, Laurier grabbed his Dickens that he brought with him, you know, the Charles Dickens book, but uh, he tried to save it, but it was lost in the bottom of a lifeboat gone wild that he tried to get in. And then uh, one of the ropes got caught and he said to other people in the boat, we need to get on this boat. It's more dangerous to be in this boat, the lifeboat. And uh, unfortunately, most of the people in that lifeboat didn't listen. And uh, were thrown into the water, but he did manage to get out. Theodate, she went under and uh, was unconscious for a long time. One boat just came down on another, crushing everybody in the bottom boat. All of this to say, you know, you think now almost of the miracle of Titanic's boat launchings. I mean, think about it. You know, a lot of the sources criticize Titanic's crew in those moments. But if you hear a story like this, then you realize what a miracle it is that that many boats made it off of Titanic in in a proper fashion, made it into the water properly. Still doesn't excuse the empty lifeboats. Still doesn't excuse people not rowing back to try to pick up more people, that kind of thing. But it is it is miraculous that Titanic stayed upright long enough for that many boats to be launched. Uh, and it was far from perfect. There was obviously tons of chaos on Titanic as well. But, you know, the argument we could have for days and weeks and years and infinity about whether more people would have survived if there were more lifeboats on Titanic. I mean, I am definitely in the camp of, unfortunately, that probably doesn't mean that, you know, the the ship was headed headed into its final plunge and they were just then getting the collapsibles uh, down. So anyway. I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the future. Captain Turner stayed on the bridge in full dress and went down with the ship. But we'll hear about him more in a minute. Robert Kay, remember I mentioned him, the little boy at the measles. He had to go into quarantine, but he and his mother uh, did make it up onto the deck. Unfortunately, they were separated. He survived But there is this horrible story of another passenger claiming that she saw a woman giving birth in the water. And Robert was had to live the rest of his life knowing, and Eric Larson points this out uh, in a heartbreaking way, knowing that was probably her. You know, that's 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 hard. Only six lifeboats got away. Two miles from impact at this point. Only 12 miles from Old Head of Kinsales, only 12 miles from land. The bodies thrashing the struggle in 55 degree water, not quite as cold as Titanic's water, obviously, but you lose body heat really fast in 55 degrees. And one to two hours, you're unconscious for most people, and death could follow quickly after that. How long you survive in 55 degree water, I think is a lot more, just from the the base reading I was doing, is a lot more variable than if you're in the below freezing water. There's a lot more, the risk varies according to your size, your age, kind of physical condition that you're in, that sort of thing. There was a large ship 
that was originally going to be sent to aid, because obviously <laughs> reports are going out, the wireless are, are, um, our messages are going out. The Admiralty is aware at this point that this has happened, but they recall the Juno, the larger ship that they're sending to rescue. Because remember, ding, 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 because of those three large cruisers that had been lost, because they were, because two of them were rescue ships, they had devised this rule that no large cruiser could go to the aid of U-boat victims. So they recalled the Juno and instead sent like a, what Eric Larson calls a ragtag armada of trawlers and fishing vessels. By evening, you know, that was at 2, 2.30, uh, by the evening it was more corpses that these uh, ships were finding than live bodies. And the phrase that the sailors on the Mackay Bennett, and I just did an episode about the Mackay Bennett, they used that phrase when they found the Titanic bodies, the sea was strewn. And here I find that exact phrase again. Eric Larson found this quote from one of the people on one of these uh, trawlers, sea was strewn, the sea was strewn. It's just hard to imagine. Theodate, she actually ends up in a pile of bodies and a woman notices that she seems to still be breathing. So she's rescued from this pile of bodies in a corpse in an area of of a ship deemed for um, or put aside for corpses. And she is revived and she survives and she goes on to live uh, quite a bit. Turner, the captain, is plucked from the water. He survives. Of 1,959 passenger and crew, only 764 survived. So 1,195 deaths, including 123 Americans. Bodies continued to be found swept up on shore in the area for months to come. And those bodies were treated with as much respect as they could be in those situations. They were often in pieces decaying, uh, really brutal business. Of the bodies from the ships that were brought in from the water, and this ties in with my, my book, Mackay Bennett episode as well, quote unquote, important bodies, aka first class bodies, or the best that people could identify the class of someone through their clothes and such, uh, those were embalmed. So again, the class structure, uh, even through the line of horrific death is in place here. So First-class bodies, or those that were perceived to be, were embalmed, and the others were just put in mass areas or just put straight into coffins, allowed to decay. Oh, um, bodies were photographed so that they could potentially be ID'd later. These photos are apparently available, and Larson writes about them. I have not had the wherewithal to look them up. Uh, Preston Pritchard, the student from Montreal. He did not survive, but there is a great little archive related to him now because his mother apparently wrote to people on board that he'd interacted with. He was a very social person, a very well-liked person. He wanted, She wanted to sort of try to recreate his final moments and his final days. And a lot of people replied to her and wrote about his gregarious nature and the interactions they had with him on board. And so now there is this little archive and, and Larson uh, writes about this that sort of recreates his life in this really amazing way. 
And so his mother, you know, at least kind of got the gift of that. Captain Turner was put to trial in both countries. He was found at no fault eventually and was very hurt that the Admiralty would put the blame of the sinking on him because he had been obviously such a fearless and courageous leader and captain in those moments and throughout his career, according to the accounts of many, many, many people that had worked with him. But uh, I think the answer there is is pretty clear because if he was at fault, then the Admiralty was not. (laughs) They were diverting attention away from their own failure to protect the Lusitania. And like I mentioned earlier, there is this question of whether that was on purpose. There is at least one uh, well-known naval historian that did research to that effect, and I'm sure there have been others. Again, I'm not well-read on naval warfare in World War I, but there is a belief that the Lusitania was allowed to be that vulnerable so that the United States would enter the war. So is this what some people call fate? I don't know. You know, a confluence of delays and seconds and moments. Uh, The fact that the Lusitania was right there for that shot by the U-boat in that exact moment. Moments and seconds just kind of stack up and ignite literally and figuratively. But there is this question of why we don't obsess over other shipwrecks like this one. Uh, And why we go back to Titanic more than any other ship would genuinely love your input on that. Would love to hear, uh, you know, as we near the end of season one of Unsinkable, would really love to hear from you guys what you think about that question. Is it, is it the 15 minutes versus two and a half hours? Is it that it's an iceberg versus a torpedo? You know, something nature made versus man-made. So like I mentioned in the beginning, (laughs) I was under the impression when I was younger and studying history that the Lusitania sent the United States right into war, but this is not true. It was actually a couple of years later, the sort of boiling point was the Zimmerman telegram, which was uh, Germany's attempt to form an alliance with Mexico, the secret message they sent uh, that they would uh, work a deal, ally with Mexico, and then help Mexico, quote unquote, get back Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico from the United States. Now, Wilson uh, obviously declares war after at that point. And uh, I realize I haven't talked about that part of the book at all. And like I mentioned earlier, that's one of my critiques of the book. Uh, It seems like a lot of energy put towards Wilson's personal life that I didn't really fully understand the connections uh, between. There is this one moment where it's in, in 1917, there is a ship that is torpedoed that has his new wife, has friends of his new wife, Edith. And so maybe there is this suggestion that it is the emotionality of knowing people that went down in a torpedoed ship that finally pushed him over the edge. But in general, I just think the Wilson sections could have been condensed down and put in there in a different way. And so two years later, war is declared. Captain Turner ends up the captain of a horse ship literally a horse transporting ship. Uh, And then the Ivernia, which was also sunk, and he survives again. Uh, Churchill persisted in blaming him, uh, 
which was obviously a sore spot, and understandably so. He then became sort of a ceremonial relief captain and then retired. He tried moving to Australia to sort of reunite with his family there, but that apparently did not go very well. So he stayed with his companion in Great Crosby outside Liverpool, never really talked about Lusitania, but according to the companion, still lived a fairly happy life and had everything he needed, tried to have a positive attitude where he could and remained kind of jolly, uh, maybe not quite as jolly. A Nazi U-boat, to note, would kill his youngest son in 1941. I don't really know where to leave the Lusitania. <laughs> like I mentioned, it's uh, there are enough stories and people involved with it to make separate episodes about them all. If someone was to ever take that on, there is so much to read, uh, so much to explore. So I definitely recommend you doing so. I'll try to, like I said, recommend some books in the show notes. I also recommend checking out uh, Eric Larson's other works, like I said. And I think the most important thing coming off of the anniversary, of course, is just to remember all of the lives lost and honor them. And I hope I do so by making an episode like this. And I thank you for listening. All right. Very importantly, I want to thank my newest Patreon subscribers. There is a big group of you this time because it has been a couple of weeks between episodes. I want to thank Melissa W. I want to thank Cameron. I want to thank Jackie. I want to thank Caitlin. I want to thank Melissa C. I want to thank Sam. And I want to thank Emily. You guys are the absolute best. I am so grateful, so humbled by your support. And your support goes straight into the podcast, hosting fees, uh, you know, research, uh, equipment, technical aspects. It, it just is such a big deal to have that additional help in making the podcast. So thank you. And if you are someone who's interested in becoming a Patreon member, you can go to patreon.com backslash unsinkablepod and just kind of get a sense of the feed. Although you won't be able to see the bonus episodes because those are behind the wall. Uh, I did. I'm, I'll be curious to hear some. I've heard a little bit of feedback. Uh, my husband and I did a reaction pod to the Tubi movie, Titanic 666, and that is currently on Patreon. I did post that the other day, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it, so I'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, thank you guys for listening. As always, I will be back next week with, an, I think, a very intriguing episode about Captain Smith, and we will round out May uh, with the Kate Winslet retrospective, which I am giddily excited about. You're probably not shocked to hear that. Uh, in the meantime, find me, of course, on socials at UnsinkablePod on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, show notes will have links to anything you might need. Have a fantastic weekend and talk soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>